2010 book, The Grand Design, Stephen Hawking and Leonard <coughs> Mladenov propose scientific determinism as an exhaustive account of nature, including for human beings. They say, since people live in the universe <coughs> and interact with the other objects in it, scientific determinism must hold for people as well. End quote. And although many people, he said, they say, would make an exception for human behavior because they believe we have free will, end quote, the authors reassure us that free will is just an illusion of our subjectivity and of our inability in a timely way to complete the complex and cumbersome calculations that would, in theory, enable us to infallibly predict any individual's behavior at any moment. <clears throat> the, the dismissive attitude characteristic of these authors towards anything that might challenge the monopoly of science, or rather, I should say, scientists, over meaning production in our culture, nothing against the scientists in the society, <laughs> shines through their challenge to the claim that humans have free will. Quote, if we have free will, where in the evolutionary tree did it, did it develop, they ask. And then to illustrate the evident absurdity of that idea, they add, do blue-green algae or bacteria have free will? <laughs> Is it only multi-celled organisms that have free will or only mammals? Not to put too fine a point on the matter, they persist in this reductio, asking about the round, the, the round worm, Kynerhabditidus, I even wrote it out, Kynerhabditis elegans, a simple creature made of only 959 cells. They continue, quote, it probably never thinks that was a damn tasty bacteria I got to dine on back there. Yet it too has a preference in food and will either settle for an unattractive meal or go foraging for something better, depending on recent experience. Is that the exercise of free will? End quote. The rhetorical question. The idea is their rhetorical question. The idea is to get the reader to agree that a human being has no more free will than a 959 cell roundworm, which is to say, none. <clears throat> Even though there is the illusion of free will in both cases. This is true for them, for our authors because we are products of the same evolutionary tree which has no breaks in its continuity, such that there would be any point for the entry of free will. Evident, evidently, for these philosophically unsophisticated scientists, evolution, which is not that all scientists are unsophisticated <laughs> philosophically, but they are. Evolution, which is governed by scientific determinism and free will, which would not be, are mutually incompatible for them. Can freedom be generated from unfreedom? Though I can lay claim to little more philosoph philosophical sophistication than our two authors can, I doubt it. And the non-theistic philosopher Thomas Nagel seems to agree in his book Mind and Cosmos, where he argues, somewhat as the young Socrates did, uh, or had wanted to discover, 
as it's reported in the Fido, that mind is a fundamental feature of the cosmos. This is Nagel now. And that at a certain point, the universe wakes up and becomes conscious in the persons of its rational agents, us humans. But this is not something that science could either verify or falsify. Nor is it a doctrine of creation, which is not only not the same as a scientific theory of origins of the universe, but is also not the same thing as a purely philosophical account of origins based on reason alone. As the Catechism puts it, quote, beyond the natural knowledge that every man can have of the creator, referring here to philosophical knowledge, God progressively revealed to Israel the mystery of creation, end quote. And this revelation culminates in Christ, such that, quote, the mystery of Christ casts conclusive light on the mystery of creation, end quote. That's section 280. Of course, it almost goes without saying that, that from the catechism's point of view, the doctrine of creation also answers questions of a wholly different order from those which science answers. And as such, the doctrine of creation, quote, goes beyond the domain of the natural sciences too, end quote. The doctrine of creation is not reducible to any use of reason alone, whether of the empirical scientific or of the metaphysical philosophical variety. It is ultimately accessible only to faith, even if faith of its very nature seeks understanding. But we will not find a doctrine of evolution on purely scientific or even philosophical grounds that can produce a full account of the created world precisely as created. My goal in this presentation is more modest. I'd like to show that the evolutionary style of thinking, especially as applied to the development of the natural world, is not necessarily foreign to theology as it seeks to understand revelation. This does not mean that the mystery of creation is ultimately compatible with any particular scientific version of the doctrine of evolution. I'm not learned enough in the science, nor as I mentioned before in the relevant philosophy, to make an educated judgment about that. Yet, given that the evolutionary style of thinking is not foreign to theological reflection on creation, and in fact has quite ancient precedent, it may be that there are versions of scientific evolutionary theory that are not incompatible with the doctrine of creation. And it may even be that the doctrine of creation, which seems to lend itself to evolutionary understandings, may be able to enrich our appreciation of the scientific theories without being able, of course, to verify or falsify them on grounds outside of the scientific method. <clears throat> the catechism actually lends some antecedent credibility to this hope when it notes that, quote, creation has its own goodness and proper perfection, but it did not spring forth complete from the hands of the creator. The universe was created in a state of journeying in statue VA towards an ultimate perfection yet to be attained to which God has destined it, end quote, section 302. Even more specifically, in the Catechism's entry on physical evil, the text notes that because, quote, God freely willed to create a world in a state of journeying towards its ultimate perfection, end quote, it means that, quote again, in God's plan, this process of becoming 
involves the appearance of certain beings and the disappearance of others, the existence of the more perfect alongside the less perfect, both constructive and destructive forces of nature, end quote. Further, angels and men as intelligent and free creatures, this is a quote, have to journey toward their ultimate destinies by their free choice and preferential love, end quote. And this, of course, includes the possibility of sin. With regard to human beings in particular, God, quote, enables human beings to be intelligent and free causes in order to complete the work of creation, end quote, number 307. And the Catechism reminds us it's a token of, all God's, of Almighty God's greatness and goodness that he grants his creatures not only their existence, but also the dignity of acting on their own, of being causes and principles for each other, and thus of cooperating in the accomplishment of his plan. That was a quote. One can readily recognize this as a doctrine of secondary causes, a phrase the catechism, catechism uses earlier in its discussion of scriptural accounts of God's providence. Some of you will recognize maybe that the ultimate source for the approach of the catechism here is Saint Irenaeus, Saint Irenaeus of Lyon, who is Bishop of Lyon from 178. Uh, and it was elected bishop after that community had suffered a terrible, really gruesome persecution in which the bishop was himself was, was martyred, the previous bishop. Irenaeus's polemic against the Gnostics, the Gnostics falsely so-called as he calls them, led him to emphasize the freedom of human beings as necessarily agents of their own perfection against the deterministic position of the Gnostics who taught that human beings had fixed natures, some of whom were essentially uncreated, divine, perfect, and could not be improved, if only they would realize it. <laughs> so that's why knowledge is the key to salvation, because they need to realize their, their inner divinity, true divinity. While others who were created by Satan, the creator God, so the creator God is evil in the Gnostic system, while others were incapable of perfection or any true goodness. From the perspective of the Gnostics, it seemed self-evident that if the creator were good, he would not have created beings who could sin. Irenaeus pictures them as asking, why did he create beings who were capable of sinning and bringing destruction upon themselves and others? In response, Irenaeus elaborates, a theology intended to uphold apostolic tradition regarding the goodness of creation. He sets himself the project of developing and defending the idea of a created good. That is, something that is not divine, not uncreated, but nevertheless good. Because in the Gnostic system, there's only uncreated good, and everything that's created is evil. So a created good is not really a mean between the extremes, but it's what Irenaeus sets out to develop a theology of. Here's a quote. If, however, anyone says, <clears throat> what then? <clears throat> Could not God have exhibited man as perfect from the beginning? 
Let such a person know that inasmuch as God is indeed always the same and unbegotten as regards himself, all things are possible to him. But created things must be inferior to him who created them from the very fact of their later origin. For it was not possible for things recently created to have been uncreated. But inasmuch as they are not uncreated, for this very reason, do they come short of the perfect. Because as these things are of later date, so are they infantile. So are they unaccustomed to and unexercised in perfect discipline, end quote. A created self's perfection would not simply be given with its existence, as is the case with uncreated divinity, which has its perfection simply by existing. Rather, the perfection of a created good would be a matter of growth and maturation, a kind of journey from an inexperienced infancy to a fully experienced adulthood. Here's a quote. For as it is certainly in the power of a mother to give strong food to her infant, but she does not do so, as the child is not yet able to receive more substantial nourishment, so also it was possible for God himself to have made man perfect from the first, but man could not receive this perfection, being as yet an infant, end quote. And you'll recognize Paul in the background here, who, who, who tells the Corinthians that he didn't give them strong meat at birth, but milk. So, Irenaeus continues, God had power at the beginning to grant perfection to man, but as the latter was only recently created, he could not possibly have received it, end quote. Just as an infant could not receive filet mignon, even if it does cost $26 a pound. <laughs> That's my only joke. <laughs> I'm glad you recognized it. In fact, it would be an abuse of God's power a kind of violence to try to force the spiritual fillet of perfection into the spiritual throats of us infants. The Gnostic critic has the wrong idea of the creator's power if he thinks it consists in shoving perfection into those who are not yet ready to receive it. That is, if he thinks that God is, God's power is in any way coercive. Against this, Irenaeus states flatly, quote, there is no coercion with God, end quote because he says that would violate the ancient law of human liberty. The power of God is not the power imagined in Gnostic myths, a power of constraint and force. That's the way Satan works. The true God is act actually powerful enough to make freedom, which exhibits itself first as a purely formal state, the ability to choose, but then needing exercise, growth, experience and discipline to be strong enough to, to be free enough to choose the good and so to grow towards perfection. Otherwise, if the perfection is implanted, it's not really one's own. More importantly, one's own very being would not really be one's own. One doesn't realize or wouldn't realize how good he is or she is speaking in terms of human nature and its created cap capacities, until those capacities are exercised enough so that the person discovers he or she 
can make consistently and eventually heroically loving choices, just as the local martyrs had done in the recent persecution of the Church of Lyon. And part of the reason Irenaeus' writing is to defend the martyrs, because from the Gnostics' point of view, why would you be a martyr? The world of matter and the world of, of um, uh, uh, yeah, the world of matter is basically an illusion or it's evil. What happens in the body doesn't matter. So why would you bother? And so Irenaeus is trying to argue what happens in the body does matter, and it's part of a struggle to grow in perfection, to grow in loving witness to Christ. Irenaeus comments, if the good were imposed on a free creature, apart from his or her choice, Irenaeus comments, thus it would come to pass that their being good would be of no consequence, because they were so by nature rather than by will, and are possessors of good spontaneously, not by choice. And for this reason, they would not understand this fact, that good is a comely thing, nor would they take pleasure in it." End quote. Corresponding to our status as untrained, inexperienced spiritual infants, God had a plan for bringing us into spiritual maturity. It's called the Incarnation. Irenaeus comments, that God might easily have come to us in his immortal glory. But in that case, we could never have endured the greatness of the glory. It would be a coercive, overwhelming imposition, like trying to feed a six-course gourmet dinner to an infant. And therefore it was that he appeared as a man, that we, being nourished as it were from the breast of his flesh, and having by such a course of milk nourishment become accustomed to eat and drink the word of God, may be able also to contain in ourselves the bread of immortality, which is the spirit of the Father." End quote. The incarnation in Irenaeus is not plan B, rather it's act two of creation itself. And it reveals what kind of power created us in the first place, a power that is, as Irenaeus loves to put it, echoing 2 Corinthians, a power that that is long-suffering, patient, willing to undertake the work of nourishment that generates freedom, willing to train us in this long-sufferingness, which is the essence of creative love, so that we may bear his spirit unto immortality. The incarnation was intended to reveal that as an Irenaeus loves to put it, this is a quote from Paul, that God's power is perfected in weakness alluding to 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Something we would not imagine simply from reading the creation story in Genesis alone. And certainly not something we would know without revelation. Creation is principally a project in creating freedom. And creative power is more like the beginning of a relationship, the establishment of the relationship, where instead of the created member of the relationship already existing, the act of beginning a relationship establishes the existence of the created party. It's not an act of magic or caprice like Harry Potter, but a kind of investment or a commitment, a self-emptying promise almost on God's part to be there, but not to micromanage. The image of, of what creative freedom means is pictured quite decisively in the story of the Exodus. 
Not even God can force the Israelites to be truly free, to grow into the freedom he has given him, them. But they must struggle in the desert under God's guidance to stop wanting to trade their freedom in for garlic, cucumbers, melons, and even leeks. The leaks could give you a little pause. Irenaeus interprets the paradoxes of the, of the Exodus narrative as the paradoxes of created freedom. Not even God can remove the element of struggle involved in growing up into the freedom that God has given in creation, just like he gave the Israelites freedom in the Exodus. For that would mean destroying the very freedom he created and or the physical world in which this freedom is defined. God can't choose for us or make it so there are no real choices to be made. God's long-suffering character makes it so he works to nurture our growth by, for example, in the Exodus story, giving the Jews the law so, so that they can learn to become his free servants rather than the slaves of the Egyptians. God can and sometimes does change the exterior environment by miracles, such as the manna in the desert. But these are not intended as dazzling displays of wonder to mesmerize and coerce. Never are they intended to obviate, but only to call forth the struggle to grow up, to be truly experienced, truly tested, seasoned, and thus finally truly free. The non-rational world which has no free will, is in these extraordinary instances of the miracles, obviously ordered by God toward freedom, towards the challenge to grow. The miracles are in themselves signs that even in its ordinary state of stability, of fixed natures, which we, as, which we contemporaries might say, are characterized by the determinism of natural law, the miracles are in themselves signs that even nature in its fixed state is ordered towards freedom by the creator. Irenaeus comments, referring to the heavens and the earth and all their array as recounted in the six days of Genesis 1, quote, I have pointed out that all such have been created for the benefit of that human nature which is, which is saved, ripening for immortality that which is possessed of its own free will and its own power, and preparing and rendering it more adapted for eternal subjection to God. And therefore the creation is suited to man, for man was not made for its sake, but creation for the sake of man, end quote. Again, quote, God therefore is one and the same, who rolls up the heaven as a book and renews the face of the earth, who made the things of time for man, so that coming to maturity in them, he may produce the fruit of immortality, end quote. The fixed order of nature makes it so that when lions are produced to eat the martyrs, or fire or, fire or iron produced to torture them, their nature doesn't change to accommodate the situation. In its very stability, the fixed order of nature becomes the occasion to try the martyrs and their love so that they are challenged to grow in imitation of Christ's patient and loving endurance. In fact, 
in the temptation scenes of the Gospels, as Irenaeus comments, it's Christ's refusal to perform the miracle of changing the nature of stones into bread to ease his hunger, which shows that the stone's fixed and non-edible nature indicates the way in which the physical creation is intended to exercise freedom and that the word, the word incarnate, having truly had the humility to become a human being by resisting the temptation shows us the lengths to which the long-suffering suffering character of God will go to the point of emptying himself to the condition where he himself has to struggle to grow, resisting temptation, recapitulating, Irenaeus' favorite word, recapitulating or summing up in his incarnate life the purpose and intent of the creator in making man. Quote, For as he became man in order to undergo temptation, so also was he the word that he might be glorified. The word remaining quiescent that he might be capable of being tempted, dishonored, crucified, and of suffering death. But the human nature being swallowed up in the word, when the human nature conquered and endured and performed acts of kindness and rose again and was received up into heaven. For when strength was made perfect in weakness, it showed the kindness and transcendent power of God, end quote. That God was willing to empty himself to the point of sharing the struggle that's appointed for us. And so in his sharing of it, he reveals to us the love in which he created us. The awesome spectacle of a human being with divine power at his disposal, who even under torture and the threat of unjust execution, not only endures, refusing to change nature on his own behalf, but performs acts of kindness reveals the amazing beauty of what, a, what comely a thing a human being is, reveals and vindicates the creator's intentions in the first place against the Gnostics. And note that, although made perfect in weakness, it is still a feat, not of abstract coercive power, but of strength. For he fought and conquered, Irenaeus says, for he was a man contending for the fathers, and through the, Adam, he means, and through the obedience, doing away with disobedience completely. For he bound the strong man, the devil, and set free the weak and endowed his own handiwork with salvation by destroying sin, end quote. So power made perfect in weakness is a kind of strength, but it's not a violence. The loving freedom of the incarnate word, in fact, recapitulates the purpose of the whole creation. Inanimate and irrational natures included. These latter, far from reflecting the imprisoning designs of an evil creator God, are most truly themselves, their goodness most truly seen in their orientation towards the nurturing and perfection of the freedom of human beings they too will receive an increase proportionate to the eschatological perfection of human freedom in the new heavens and new earth, intended as the book of Revelation reveals, for the martyrs and for all who have been perfected in the freedom of the passion of Christ, freedom which is fully revealed 
as the freedom of the resurrection. Is this a theory of evolution? Certainly not, if one is thinking either of a theory in which freedom evolves somehow from that which is unfree and by nature determined, nor if one is thinking of freedom as something which is already always absolute in its perfection and does not of its own very freedom grow and develop. The Gnostic account of a world enslaved to caprice and lust, to the irrational, to futility, while freedom, if it genuinely exists, means something hermetically sealed off from the material, from the realm of the irreducibly material and therefore irreducibly unfree. The Gnostic account of the world is an illusion of the refusal to grow up. The material world exists not as a restraint upon freedom, a prison, but as ordered towards its growth, trusting that true power is perfected in weakness, is trusting that on one's journey towards strength in loving, one will be accompanied by the physical world itself, which will find its own perfection in the perfection of the loving human being joined to the second Adam as head. Indeed, one could think that in its own evolution towards new forms, in its being itself according to its capacity, the material creation is already accompanying us, exercising us in our journey into the perfection of freedom. Turning to Augustine, we can in some ways find a similar dynamic, only one that is more self-consciously and deliberately laid out in terms of what we might call a dialogue between science and religion. But this is only because Augustine invokes science itself as a testimony against his ultimate target, the Gnosticizing religion of the Manichees. In having such an ultimate target, he resembles Irenaeus, but in specifically invoking natural philosophy, or what we would call science, in his polemic against the determinism of Manichaeism, he draws closer to us because he is in the process also obliged to point out the limitations of science, even as he exploits all the evident advantages it offers him towards his critique of Manichaeism. So it's both and, Catholic. In his most mature and longest commentary on Genesis, De Genesi ad Literam, on, on the literal meaning of Genesis, Augustine lays out some warnings for Christian theologians whose statements might conflict with the results of astronomical research by natural philosophers, whom today we would call scientists. Some of these passages became famous because they were cited by Galileo in defense of his orthodoxy, and they're probably familiar to you. To begin with, it's important that Augustine is interested in providing a literal exegesis of the opening chapters of Genesis. This is called De Genesi ad Literam, so on the literal interpretation of Genesis. It's important that he's interested in providing a literal interpretation and that he makes it clear 
that is far from obvious in most cases what the literal meaning of this text could be. From the point of view of many of our contemporaries, the literal meaning is almost by definition the obvious meaning, the plain or surface meaning of the text. An example would be the unreflective assumption that the literal sense of Genesis 1 is that God created by speaking words such as we are familiar with, and the work that God did by speaking was extended over a period of time, six days to be exact, again such days as we are familiar with, and that God stopped working on the seventh day and rested. None of this is obvious to Augustine, who questions what it might mean for God to speak when there has been no language invented, when God who has no mouth hasn't created any creature yet through whom he could speak, and when there isn't any air yet through which sound could travel. Was there even time yet when the earth was still formless and void? And time would be required if God's creative speaking involved the sentence with words. What could morning and evening mean when the sun hadn't been created yet? The text is telling us that the sense to be attributed to morning and evening is not the same as that marked out by the rising and the setting of the sun. So the days spoken of cannot be those marked out by the sun, Augustine point of view. All these questions are not raised by a, a hostile party trying to debunk scripture, but by the text of scripture itself. The text is telling us that if there is a literal sense to what the text claims, it can't be the obvious sense, which an unreflective approach to the text might assume. This is true even of the first verse of scripture in the beginning. What is the beginning in which God created heaven and earth? It can't refer to time, since if there were already time in existence in which God is acting, then God's actions are time bound. The text is insisting that we look more deeply and more carefully for its literal sense. There's a balance here, right? I'm not saying we're looking for an allegorical sense. We're looking for the literal sense. And the text is telling you to look deeper. But why would one persist in the pursuit of a literal sense that doesn't seem to this unreflective posture so literal after all? It is because scripture says that God actually did something, you know, like punched the clock. No, <laughs> he did work and then he rested. Well, it says that God actually did something and something happened as a result. So the text can't simply be relegated to a prophetic meaning that is a figuration of something yet to come, though it also is that. Nor can it be reduced to a purely symbolic or allegorical meaning, as though it were a kind of code way of speaking about affairs internal to human reason and psyche, though it may also have some purchase as such too. The literal sense is the sense which accepts the major claim that scripture makes about God's doing something, about God's acting, and that everything which is not God came about as a result of his action. The text is resisting the mythological notion that God's acts of creation involve some change in God, or that the creation of time, an aspect of creation, is somehow within time, while yet wanting to claim 
So it resists the mythological notion while yet wanting to claim that God nevertheless does act, such that, quote, God, without any change in himself, produces effects subject to change and measured by time, end quote. The literal sense of Genesis must involve a use of language that can evoke a true act, which nevertheless transcends time, space, and any kind of change in God. Since, quote, God does not work under the limits of time by motions of body and soul, as do human beings and angels, but by the eternal, unchangeable, and fixed exemplars of his co-eternal word, and by a kind of brooding action of love of his equally co-eternal Holy Spirit, the end quote, the precise literal sense, being about matters outside of any possible experience of ours, quote, is obscure and far beyond our vision, end quote. We have to be careful not to circumscribe our thinking or imagination such that we are in effect, quote, wishing the teacher of Holy Scripture to conform to our own, whereas we ought to wish ours to conform to that of sacred scripture, end quote. Thus, we have to allow scripture to proclaim the transcendent acts of God as distinct from myth, and yet without reducing them to terms defined by time and space, as if in our way of putting it, creation were equi equivalent to a scientific hypothesis about the origin of the universe, one that is empirically verifiable or falsifiable. In fact, Augustine states some very specific cautions against theology working as though the doctrine of creation were in fact falsifiable by empirical evidence. Usually, he comments, quote, even a non-Christian knows something about the earth, the heavens, like that, even, an <laughs> even a non-Christian knows something about the earth, the heavens, and the other elements of this world, about the motion and orbit of the stars, etc. Therefore, he goes on, quote, it is a disgraceful and dangerous thing for an unbeliever to hear a Christian, presumably giving the meaning of Holy Scripture, talking nonsense on these topics. And we should take all means to prevent such an embarrassing situation, end quote. The problem is not so much that the ignorant exegete is mocked and scorned, though that's a problem, but rather, quote, that people outside the household of faith think our sacred writers held such opinions, end quote, and thus these writers are rejected as unlearned and the scriptures with them. Quote, reckless and incompetent expounders of Holy Scripture bring untold trouble and sorrow on their wiser brethren when they are caught in one of their mischievous false opinions, end quote. When non-believers, quote, find a Christian mistaken in a field which they themselves know well, which they themselves have learned from experience and the light of reason, end quote. Augustine worries that such people, scandalized, will then never believe what scripture has to say about matters like the resurrection of the dead and the hope of eternal life if they think that scripture teaches scientific error. Further, unlearned Christians can be scandalized when non-believing critics of scripture, or at least critics of scientific errors that they, the critics, believe scripture teaches, are heard, quote, eloquently discoursing on the theories of astronomy or on any of the questions relating to the elements of the universe, end quote. 
So unlearned Christians can be scandalized by non-believers who are learned in these matters and therefore seem to make scripture unlearned. Augustine comments that with a sigh, these unlearned Christians esteem these teachers as superior to themselves, looking upon them as great men, and they return with disdain to the books which were written for the good of their souls, end quote. The purpose of scripture in all of its senses, including the literal, is not to produce a scientific handbook in the end, but rather to nourish the good of souls. We are not to mistake scripture's teaching for science, for then it will look inevitably primitive and unlearned, no better than myth. When scientists are able, quote, from reliable evidence to prove some fact of physical science, we shall show that it is not contrary to scripture, end quote, presumably by searching for the literal sense as part of the proclamation of God's transcendent acting. On the other hand, quote, when they produce from any of their books a theory contrary to scripture, and therefore contrary to the Catholic faith, either we shall have some ability to demonstrate that it is absolutely false, or at least we ourselves will hold it so without any shadow of a doubt, end quote. In other words, if it is truly the faith that is offended by a theory, as opposed to a fact of physical science, since faith is placed not in scientific theories, but in God's transcendent acts, one will be able to refute it, at least in principle. It is interesting to observe that contrary to what many moderns assume, the six-day scheme of creation was not taken in antiquity, I don't think by anyone, to refer to six literal days. This was not the traditional interpretation, debunked as people think in the last century or so. For Augustine, since the first three days cannot have been literal days as we know them now, the rest must follow suit. In fact, he says, quote, those first six days occurred in a form unfamiliar to us as intrinsic principles within things created, end quote. In fact, Augustine argues that the light created on the first day, let there be light, is the angelic creatures created rational light, created wisdom, enlightened by the word of God, by which they are made day. There is only this one day that in its knowledge of the creature as God creates each, is aware of the creature in light of God's wisdom or word and also in itself, a knowledge that is called evening and then in its refusal to dwell in the creature in itself, but in referring that creature back to God in a sacrifice of praise, morning dawns. So the angel's knowledge of itself in itself is evening knowledge. The angel's knowledge of itself and of each thing created then in, in the light of eternal wisdom is the morning dawning. The angels remain day and never night because they do not fall into the solipsism of rejoicing in their own creation as though it were their own, as though they were self-sufficient, nor in any other creature as though it had meaning in their knowledge of it, the angels, 
rather than in God's eternal knowledge of it. Creation is light in its ability to give itself back to God in praise of God, the sacrifice of praise. Surely by any account, this is one of the purposes of the biblical story to proclaim creation unto the praise of the creator. The theory has more merit than it might seem at first glance, but I, I'm not gonna go into it here. But the angelic knowledge is not sequential. All of creation is created simultaneously, though not in its current form. Rather, quote, through the wisdom, through wisdom, all things were made, and the motion we now see in creatures, measured by the lapse of time, as each one fulfills its proper function, comes to creatures from causal reasons, rationes, implanted in them, which God scattered as seeds at the moment of creation, when he spoke and they were made, he commanded and they were created. This is creation, strictly speaking, at least as we would use the word, creation from nothing. But subsequently, God's providence, quote, works within the course of time. Augustine says we must therefore, quote, make a threefold distinction in speaking of creation. First, there are the unchangeable forms in the word of God. Secondly, God's works from which he rested on the seventh day. Finally, the things he produces from those works even now, end quote. God, quote, unfolds the generations which he laid up in creation when he first founded it, end quote. God's providence is recognized in the inexpressible awe and wonder, that's a quote, that both the simple observer and even more the learned are filled with in contemplating the order, the quote, rule of measures, every harmony of numbers, every order of weights, end quote. This wonder is not so much the result of a train of reasoning, of an argument from design, so to speak, though the obvious design of even bodies is an element adding to the wonder. Rather, this wonder is the awareness of an order of causation that is not within the succession of times, not within change, but transcendent of it, and to which the proper response is praise rather than a denial of wonder by reducing it to our rationality, itself one of the wonders for which praise is proper, our reason. <clears throat> Augustine gives the creation of human beings as an example of the sort of thing that was created, strictly speaking, in the simultaneous creation from nothing in the six days and of the later unfolding of what was created. How were the human male and female created originally on the sixth day. Augustine answers, quote, invisibly, potentially, in their causes, as things that will in the future, things that will be in the future are made, yet not made in actuality now, end quote. This is hard to understand, Augustine says, because the original causes or seeds are not physical, as though <clears throat> are not physical, though they are created. They are hidden and invisible reasons latent in creation as causes, end quote. 
Thus the doctrine of the seminal reasons, I'm sure you recognize it, as it is sometimes called, is not a quasi-deist kind of materialism. That is, that God creates the material universe something like a clock, <clears throat> which ticks and unwinds on the basis of a purely material pre-state that inevitably produces the final state. That would reduce God to the equivalent of a physical cause, only the first one in a chain of physical causes. Instead, it must be recalled that measure, number, and weight, quote, are not simply marks of order in the material world, though they are, but they're not simply marks of order in the material world. The material world does have me measure, number, and order, but the human spirit has these features also. For example, there is the measure of an activity which keeps it from going on without control. There is the number of the affections of the soul and of the virtues by which the soul is held away from the unformed state of folly and turned towards the form and beauty of wisdom. And there is the weight of the will and of love, end quote, which can be rightly or wrongly directed. So measure, number, and weight are spiritual quantities also. In fact, God himself has measure, number, and weight. He is, quote, the measure without measure, the number without number, the weight without weight, end quote. How's that? We could say God is free, utterly himself, not dependent, known as measure, number, and weight uniquely. Insofar as measure is that, quote, which places a limit on everything, number gives everything form, and weight draws each thing to a state of repose and stability, God is most truly and fundamentally all three, because, quote, he limits everything, forms everything, and orders everything, end quote. God is dependent and limited by nothing in creation, nothing in any way. He has no need of what he creates, and creation does not add to his happiness. So to say that creation has measure, number, and weight is to say that each finite instance of measure, number, and weight, each created object, reflects its origin in God's Trinitarian freedom in which it was created. Each creature is a vestige, a vestigium, or trace, a footprint, of its origin in God's will, which gives each thing itself as a gift, that it may be a true self, something that has measure, number, and weight, a true self free to the extent of its capacity. God's ratio, ratio, his, 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 his plan, his reason for creation is his will for it to be, to be free to be a self, each thing insofar as nature permits, with a human being as an image of the free Trinitarian self that God is, while everything else is a trace or a footprint. In the city of God, Augustine's work, The City of God, this results in an almost poetic account of created reality. 
Augustine's explaining here in book 11, how the weight of a created thing is its love. One dimension of which is love of its own existence. This love is obvious in human beings, Augustine says, since most, he says all, would prefer misery over annihilation. But it is true not only, but it is true not only of rational creatures, quote, why even the irrational animals, from the immense dragons down to the tiniest worms, including the 959 cell ones, who are not endowed with the capacity to think on those matters, show that they wish to exist and to avoid extinction by taking every possible action to escape destruction, end quote. And then Augustine continues, there are the trees and shrubs and the blue-green algae. <laughs> they have no perception to enable them to avoid danger by any immediately visible mo movement, but they send up one shoot into the air to form their crown. And to safeguard this, they fix another shoot in the earth to form their root so that they may draw their nourishment thereby and thus in some way preserve their existence, end quote. But even more, Augustine comments that even material objects, which are not only bereft of sense perception, but lack even reproductive life, shoot up aloft or sink down to the depths or hang suspended in between so, so as to secure their existence in the situation to which they are by nature adapted, end quote. What applies to love of existence also applies to love of knowledge as well. We're still on weight, love of. The human being's love of knowledge is again obvious, Augustine says, in the preference that people generally have for preserving their rationality, even if it means being miserable, rather than lose our reason and be joyful. Especially since our reason can attain to the perception of immaterial light. But even non-rational creatures who have sensation exhibit, quote, at least something parallel to knowledge, end quote. And astonishing, astonishingly to us, the readers of Augustine, quote, in the case of trees and plants, there is something like sensitivity in their powers of taking nutriment and of reproduction. Yet these and all other material things have their causes hidden in nature but they offer their forms to the perception of our senses, those forms which give loveliness to the structure of this visible world. It almost seems as if, as if they long to be known just because they cannot know themselves." End quote. It's interesting that Augustine, instead of attempting to reduce human beings to the level of worms and irrational objects in their unfreedom, sees the marks of freedom everywhere, even in objects that have no obvious claim on free will. So it's reversed from what Stephen Hawking does. Order and beauty summed up by form are the marks or signs of intelligibility, which I'd like to distinguish from intelligent design. I'm not disowning that phrase as useful in certain contexts. I'm certainly not in favor of unintelligent design, but I know this is kind of a specialty phrase and I, and I want to say something a little bit different, I think. Order and beauty summed up by form are the marks or signs of intelligibility, 
intelligibility, including the intelligibility of both the Trinitarian traces and their Trinitarian image, is a sign of the world's creation in the word of the Father. So intelligibility is a sign of the world's, word, world's creation in the word of the Father. Its intelligibility is that of God's word. And in the city of God, by book 11, Augustine has already introduced us quite thoroughly to the revelation of God's word in his lengthy discussions of, of mediation and of the mediator, Jesus Christ, whose incarnation, passion, and death display to us a deeper intelligibility than reason alone can find, though as an intelligibility, certainly not offensive to reason, namely the intelligibility of freely poured out, self-emptying love. This is the revelation of God's creative plan on the cross, undertaken in utter freedom and marking everything with the freedom of love outpoured without restraint. Perceiving this intelligibility on behalf of rational creatures is not simply observing a design then, grand or not, but responding to the love it traces out. It means entering into a relationship in which the freedom of creation, one's own in particular, is exercised in sacrifice, in giving back that freedom in praise instead of hoarding it as one's own possession and disfiguring itself, thereby becoming night. By assuming the intelligibility of the cosmos is fully available to human re reason without remainder. That very assumption renders the observer less objective and the view of reality generated will ultimately be a reflection of the pride of the observer in refusing to surrender creation to the love from which it came. Can there be a true account of the world from science or philosophy alone? Yes, though, if it is claimed as an exhaustive account onto which some subjective mysticism might be added like icing on a cake, then it is actually destructive of the world. This amounts to the tyrannical anthropocentrism that Pope Francis has condemned in true Augustinian spirit in Laudato Si. The causal reasons in Augustine are the presence to each thing of God in his willing it to be a self and his willing that by its, his providence it be drawn to its greatest freedom. Thus the rational seeds are neither the basis of a deterministic materialist unfolding nor the basis for a providence conceived as micromanager, but as a giving of self that has number, form, and weight to the extent that it can grow to be a self that is nothing else but itself, and that is free to give itself, either as a rational creature or in the gift of the rational creature's praise. From that point of view, there is plenty of room to find signs of intelligibility where it seems least expected, even in chaos, even in entropy. The universe can be itself, and if we are open to conversion, we will not try to micromanage what that self must be, either in order, what that self must be in order to be intelligently designed.
to allow the awesome wonder of creation to seize oneself, even those aspects which appear to affront reason and design, and to lead one to an awareness of the world as God's sheer gift, free in itself, of love poured out, is to realize one's own ratio as a human being. It turns out that, from Augustine's point of view, the point about confessing the mystery of creation is not to have found the equivalent of or replacement for a scientific theory that provides what feels like a rational proof or justification for God's role as creator, for that would amount to defeating the doctrine of creation as such. Rather, it is to provide the theological and intellectual context in which it makes sense to make a gift of oneself completely and without reserve in love. Just when scientific facts about the littleness of humanity in the vast and seemingly trackless universe or universes might seem to imply that this is irrational or foolish. But the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Thank you. Thank you.